Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today we are joined by Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer at ESPN. Thanks so much, Greg, for taking the time, especially on a, a busy uh, day for you uh, at uh, in Bristol, So, uh, especially with the finals coming up. So I really appreciate you taking the time. No, it's my pleasure. Uh, I am currently in transit from Brooklyn to lovely Connecticut, uh, where the ESPN headquarters are. And uh, if, if anyone's out there has ever... Uh, got gets a chance. I think you can visit it. It's very odd. It's like a small college, basically. All these buildings, all this like green space, and uh, I went to university. Uh, there's a like a cafeteria. It's a whole thing. <laughs> and uh, I want to on on the show. We we tend to ask our our guests first a little bit, but about how they started in journalism. For you, Greg, how did you? Or when did you first think you might want to pursue a career in sports journalism? Well, it was when I was a kid, um, you know, either broadcast or print. Print because when when I was a kid, my dad worked in New York City um, and he would bring home the New York Daily News and the New York Post, the tabloids. And I would grab them from his bag and and I would read them from back to front. I'd start off in the TV section in the back. And then you get to the sports and then you get to like the entertainment after that. And, and I would read it every single night. Um, and so, you know, that was a time of like snappy beat writing and columnists opining on things. And, and it was just great. I was always drawn to, to sports writing. But then I was also a kid that used to like when I would play Nintendo, I would turn the sound down on the game and like <laughs> do play by play wow. of playing yeah, I was playing like NHL on my my Nintendo. So like, um, you know, in both cases, I think it was sort of formative that I had a a real um, affinity for for sports journalism in in those nascent ways. But like, the career only took off in um, after college because I went to the University of Maryland mm-hmm. for public relations, and then. Um, I did that for a little bit after school, but, but I had a, I was sort of writing sports on the side for different online publications. Cause it was right when the internet boom was happening. Yeah. And so the first like job job I had in the business was uh, I, I became a sports writer for a chain of weekly papers in Northern Virginia. Um, and, and then eventually became, you know, a sports editor there and, and then the managing sports editor and, and worked there until, the whole hockey blogging thing sort of happened. Yeah, and, and maybe tell us about uh, before you went to ESPN, you had Puck Daddy at Yahoo for for a yeah. long, long time. Just tell us about how you got into that and and what, what that was that experience was like for you. Well, I, I am what is affectionately known known as an internet old. Uh, <laughs> I I you know my first like when I was in college, it was right when like message boards were starting, so that was a lot of like early sports writing for me was arguing with people on the internet. Uh, and then, and then like, you know, like, like I said, while I was uh, in out of college, like there were places you could write. I was publishing an online column that was like sort of syndicated to different sites. And, and by syndicated, I mean, I used to email it places and, and they would run it. Mm-hmm. And then like the first gig I ever had in, in digital media was when I was still and I worked um, for America America Online AOL. Yeah. It was a huge blogging site for a while. They had a site called Fan House where 
just like a ton of people that are still on the business road. Me, uh, J.E. Skeets from, uh, yeah. you know, the NBA. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like uh, just tons of people that um, really got into, uh, I mean, James Myrtle worked there. He's mm. at The Athletic now. Like uh, just a ton of people that are still in the business today all kind of got their start at the site. And then, then after that was uh, I worked at Deadspin under Will Leach for like a year doing NHL writing. And that was a really formative thing for me, too, mm-hmm. because uh, I, it taught me how to write for a specific audience. And, okay. and by that, I mean an audience that I knew was funnier than I was. <laughs> so I, I kind of like learned how to sort of make jokes and, and seed the columns with stuff that the the comments, the commenters could then react to. Uh-huh. Um, and that was really a fun challenge. And then after that, in 2008 is when um, I got hired at Yahoo. And I, 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 I had to kind of state my case to get hired there full time. I wanted to leave the paper and dedicate myself full time to the hockey writing thing. And so they, they took a chance on me and, and we made a really fun site. I mean, like we, I did the site all the way up until 2017. Uh, I think it was a real trailblazer for mm-hmm. the way hockey got covered over those years. We, we took chances, we did funny things, we did serious journalism, we did all of it. And, um, and that was a real thrill. And, and, and it was ex- extremely successful blog, both like externally and internally, where there might have been only other only two sites within the Yahoo family of blogs that were as well read as the hockey site was, which is a, wow. a real accomplishment in US media. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. And, and off that, what did you learn from kind of you mentioned trying to write to, to, to be funny, but also at Puck Daddy that like, what is your writing process? What would you say that is, Greg? And, and, and what do you look for in stories? Well, on the on the funny part, I instituted a rule for myself and, and all the writers that we hired there, which is that unless you're writing about something very tragic or serious, everything you write should have a three joke minimum. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be like, haha funny jokes like it just has to be three moments within your writing where you're amused by something you've done whether it's a turn of phrase or a pop culture reference or whatever just like there should be three times in your story where you're like i'm amused by this okay and and if you if you do that then you've you've captured the tone of what we were trying to do at the blog um but as far as process goes I don't know. It's, 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 I was, I was, I was born with two things that I don't, I've, I've found aren't necessarily things you can teach, which is that I write very quickly. I've always been able to write very quickly um, in, in formulating ideas and formulating opinions and then, and then finding ways to quickly create the supporting information to foster those opinions. Um, and then the other thing I, I, I've always said is really good news sense. Mm. Uh, you know, look, look, looking at a story, looking at a, a game, looking at a series and really understanding the things that are most important in trying to tell the story of that series and, and understanding also the things that are going to resonate the most with the readership. Um, so with, with those two things, to my kind of advantage, like the process of, of writing a blog and, and now writing at ESPN is is uh 
is 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 a decent one for me just because of of, of those two things kind of being inherent to my process. And, and with that, I just want to go off the the second point that you mentioned about like the newsiness of of your writing. Is that something for you where you're writing and then it just comes to you, or you're you're watching a hot like the the Stanley Cup final tonight, and then you just say, "Hey, this is a great uh, Carter Verhage story." I'm just throwing a random <laughs> out there, uh, or like, or is it more that you? It takes you like it sounds as though you write quick. So what? How does how do those stories come about for you, or those ideas? So, so sometimes it's in the moment. Um, a lot of time, I, I do a lot of prep for the things that I do, like interviews, series. Like I try to read everything I can um, as a national writer before I parachute into something. I read the local writers, I read the the, the publications, the blogs that cover those teams to just kind of get a sense of like what's being discussed and, and what the hot button issues are. And that sort of informs it a little bit. But for me, it's always like, you know, let's use the Stanley Cup final for as an example. You know, I'm going to have like three or four irons in the fire already mm-hmm. on stuff that I've kind of like been thinking about or maybe reporting on. Maybe I covered the Western Conference final and, and I've got some things that I've been like sort of picking stuff up on uh to serve us a story later in the playoffs like there are times when the story is obvious to me and then there are other times where it's like pulling information back from other stuff that i've done to say okay this is a good time to write the aiden hill thing that i've been kind of like noodling through or here's here's why i'm gonna write about you know i mean if if it's something like for like it could be that he scored the overtime game game winning goal and i've just have some stuff already in the hopper that I can turn around quickly on him. So I don't know. It's, it's a combination of that, but it's also just like, again, like I grew up reading tabloids. I grew up arguing on the internet and <laughs> you get a good sense of like, what are the things that people are going to, can I swear? I forget. Yeah. yeah, you know? can, you can. yeah. What are the things that people are going to give a shit about after this? Like yeah. I don't waste your time writing things or, or opining on things that aren't going to resonate or, or aren't going to be something that people argue about when they read the story or aren't going to be things that could maybe set the conversation in the hockey world the next morning if you've got a really strong take like those are the things you need to dedicate your energy to um the the other stuff can take care of itself like there's always room for offbeat stories or or personality profiles things like that but you've, you've got to prioritize that behind the stuff that really is the, is you swinging for the fences is that kind of your number one that you'd say if let's say you're giving advice to to young journalists is that go for where people like what people want is that is that advice that you'd give to journalists or or people in the hockey media industry yeah but the biggest the bigger part of that advice is don't be ordinary like Uh, like everyone's gonna go to this like everyone's gonna write the matthew kachuk story you know if he does something extraordinary um you know, your, your job as a, as a journalist and, and really the differentiator between yourself and the, the 25 other people that will be writing on the same topic is to figure out ways to, to separate it. And it doesn't always have to be having an opinion on something that's different than everybody else or, or being contrarian. It could be an entry point through the stats. It could be an entry point through talking to somebody who isn't in the series that has experience with Matthew Kachuk as a person like there there are a billion different ways 
that you can approach a story differently than everybody else. But the bottom line is you've got to approach it differently than everybody else. The volume of, of coverage now, whether it's print, digital, post-game interviews, radio, like all of it is just, it's all there and it's all there all the time. So your job is to, you know, find that unique take, that unique entry point. It could be from yourself. It could be your own experiences as a, as a person, as a fan, as a journalist where you're going to be able to approach a story differently than somebody else. But that's the real key. It's, it's one, knowing what to write about, but then two, knowing how not to be ordinary about it. Well, I'll definitely take that advice and I, and uh, Greg for, uh, for this podcast and for my writing. So thank you for that. And I want to switch quickly <laughs> to uh, a fun little question before uh, this is very much a Sean McIndoe kind of question uh, because I know he loves uh um, your friend in, at Puck Soup. Uh, if you were the NHL commissioner for a day, what rule would you change? <laughs> uh, there's so there's a lot of there's a lot of rules I change. Um, the the, fir- the <laughs> first one. one is okay. Well, let me let me stay on the ice then. Um, one okay. of the things that my another one of my podcasting husbands, Jeff Merrick, has oh, yeah. has always talked about is changing the rules for the power plays. Now, his mm-hmm. whole thing is that if you score a shorthanded goal, the power play should end. I, that's yeah. that's fine. That can be part of it. But the bigger thing for me is, as a guy who truly believes the more scoring we have in, in the National Hockey League, the more casual fans will attract because of how high scoring the games are, because of how many records will be threatened by offensive totals, all of that. Um, I want to see a return to the quote-unquote two-minute major. I want to see teams get a full two minutes to score as many goals as they can. And if you happen to be playing the Edmonton Oilers, I'm sorry. It's just how it is. They're going to get two full minutes of Connor and Leon making magic. And at the end of the day, you get more goals, more highlights, more scoring, more excitement. Um, And and then if you score a shorty, then that's how you end it prematurely. Yeah. Um, so that would be the change I make is go back to the two minute major. It makes it makes penalties more more vital. It makes power penalty kills more vital. It just brings more importance to that part of the game. And uh, and that's that's what I would change. Are you worried that in the playoffs because there's no penalties, it might not affect the overall impact of games or. Well, that and that's but that's great, though, Like because then it's a, a thing of like if you have that um, that of like power play specialists to just take care of that part of the game. Well, then when you get to the playoffs and theoretically there are fewer power plays, you best be able to win a five on five game. You know what I mean? So yeah. like there's yeah. a, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of nuance to it too. And there's other rules that I'd give, you know, mine to like, obviously I, I'm on the record as, as absolutely hating the shootout and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, you know, uh, Dmitry Filipovich, another big brain yeah. in the hockey world really turned me around on the idea of maybe getting rid of offside. But the, but the power play thing has always been uh, something I've been really fascinated by because I think it just changes the complexion of games so, so, so strategically uh, that it'd be fun to watch. You're definitely the first one to say this. Most people say uh, offside rule. So uh, I appreciate the the different uh, kind of on, on the power play. And I've seen that online, too. So um, that's really cool. I want to I want to switch quickly uh, before I let you go a little bit to the to obviously the on ice product in uh the Stanley Cup Finals. I know you picked uh, Golden Knights in six. How are you feeling about the finals after Game One? Do you what do you think Florida can do to 
make adjustments to come back in the series? What are just your overall thoughts on the Stanley Cup Finals so far? Well, I mean, if the if the Panthers come back and not at not at at one one, I still really really feel confident about my pick. I, I picked the Knights because they're the deeper team. Um, I think they're peaking at the right time. The Aiden Hill part of it, as, as people saw in Game One, I think there was a perception of Aiden Hill as being the kind of goalie that's like, hey, just don't lose us the game. But that's probably people that didn't watch him in the Western Conference Final um, really kind of like be a vital reason why they were able to advance against Dallas. Like he's playing really good. Um, so the, the Knights, I thought, had a lot of advantages in the series. As far as the Panthers getting back into it, I mean, the easiest path is through Bobrovsky because of just how good he's been. Um, but, you know, there's some interesting matchup situations happening in the series that seem to favor Vegas, in particular how they're defending against the Kachuk line and things like that. The Panthers have made a, a strong case for being one of the best teams in recent memory to prove people wrong every time you think they're counted out of something. <laughs> so I, I doubt they're out of this yet. Um, but, but Vegas is a very formidable opponent to them, that's for sure. Has game one changed uh, who your con Smythe picks might be on either side? Um, not really. I, I've I've long said that for the Panthers, it's going to be Bobrovsky unless Chuck has maybe like two more iconic moments in the final. And, and I think that could happen. So I didn't count him out of it yet. And on the Vegas side, like Eichel's had the inside lane for MVP based on the stats and, and based on how many people seem to really love the concept of, of this being his moment to arrive as a complete player. There's a lot of people that had, had a, a preconception of Eichel not playing def- defense that are watching him play in this playoff and are mm-hmm. like astonished that he's a 200 foot player. But the guy that I've sort of been eyeing as a potential MVP guy is, is Jonathan Marsh. So, and, you know, statistically, he's right there with Eichel. Um, I think he's now tied with Carlson and goals. Um, but he's also got the, you know, original Golden Misfit thing going on. And he also was famously jettisoned by the Panthers to then yeah. become a Vegas Golden Knight. So, I mean, like, he's got a bit of, of interesting narrative to his candidacy on top of having a very strong statistical case. And and easily is one of the, the biggest, uh, most influential players emotionally for that team, too. So Marcia is a guy that if the Knights win the Cup, I've got my eye on. But I, I guess if there's been any change, it might be the Aiden Hill part of it, where like okay. now he has this really iconic save with the paddle on Nick Cousins, uh, a couple of conference final shutouts. Like if we end the series saying, wow, where would they be without Aiden Hill? Because they had five different goalies this year there's a lane for him to maybe steal this thing too. That, that's, that's uh, definitely interesting. Do you think a goalie that played only what he came in midway through Edmonton series, is that enough games to, to win a Smythe in your mind? It, it is because of how he came in. If okay. this was simply just like Bruce Cassidy being like, we've got to switch it up yeah. uh, and putting an Aiden Hill, that's different than Aiden Hill is the absolute outside of Jonathan quick <laughs> last resort for this team. Uh, to maybe make a a, a, a a run at the cup because of the injury to Brassois. So, like, it, it, it's the way that he entered the series or the, the, the Edmonton series. And then, you know, by the way, made 24 out of 24 saves after entering mm-hmm. that game. 
Like, I feel like, I feel like that kind of overwrites the played enough games to qualify for the award part of this. Mm -hmm. And I want to switch before I let you go quickly to, you wrote about Mike Babcock. You obviously got hired by Columbus yesterday um, what do you make of that? And, and how likely is this the beginning in your mind of maybe a trend where people like Quenville and Bowman, uh, sorry, someone's uh, at the door, uh, but we're good. Um, but uh, <laughs> just uh, just in terms of uh, kind of people in the hockey industry with maybe sketchy past that are might start being welcomed back into league after maybe being jettisoned for a couple of years. What, what do you think of that? So. I, I, I hesitate to group in Babcock with Quenville okay. because Babcock, Babcock is is a bully. Uh, he likes to play mind games with his players. He's a real asshole behind the scenes. Like I've been told that by numerous players that have played for him. Uh, what Quenville did is is unconscionable. I mean, you know, wh- mm-hmm. whatever he thought was going on in that situation in that moment in Chicago. Like he was irresponsible about it and then went on to, uh, again, like recommend Brad Aldrich for other jobs. And yeah. that's just, I mean, it's, it, exactly. I don't think it's in league with what, what Babcock did. Babcock, though, like he, he'd be coaching in the league already were it not for his contract with Toronto. Like I get mm. the sense now in, in okay. reporting on this Columbus story a little bit, it, it very much feels like, like, were it not for the fact that he was owed so much money by the Leafs and whoever hired him would probably have to hit that mark financially to make it worth his while. Um, you know, that's why I think it's taken this long for him to get back behind the bench. Uh, um, how do I feel about it? I feel bad about it. Like, I, I don't think it's good for the young players that are going to be coming through the Blue Jackets organization to have Babcock there. Um, I feel bad for Johnny Goudreau leaving Calgary because of Daryl Sutter partially maybe, and then now having to play for Babcock, like yeah. <laughs> out of the frying pan into the, into the fire. Um, but it, it's very much a Yarmo Kekalainen move. Yarmo's a guy with extreme self-confidence. I'm sure he sees a bit of himself in Babcock. He's, he, he made the, the John Tortorella move already. So he clearly has a type. Um, I don't think that, Rick Nash's role in all of this, despite having played for Babcock in 2020, I get the sense from what I've heard, he wasn't like a driving force to put Babcock in that job, but was definitely used as a sounding board in the process. Um, But there he is, and and we'll see what he does. I I don't think it's all that subtle that I'm not the biggest Babcock guy. The man has done absolutely nothing of, of, of note without having the greatest team. assemblage of talent in hockey history in team in team Canada or having Nick Lidstrom on his roster too. Let's yeah. not forget about that. Um, and then, and then the other time he made the cup final, it was because JS Jaguar was so good that he won MVP in a losing effort. So yeah. I'm not the biggest Babcock guy. Maybe mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think we lost you a little bit there. I, I just want to quickly ask you, just as someone in the States, I, I'm I'm in Ottawa. What do you make of the send sale, the craziness, the reporting? What do you make of that? I was bummed because I really thought there was a good chance that we could have Ryan Reynolds in full Deadpool gear at the Board of Governors <laughs> meeting at some point. Like yeah. that would have been tons of fun. 
and then obviously like the the other stuff the whole like trying to create a documentary series based around ottawa would have certainly elevated the senator's profile in north america in ways that it had been before so that was kind of a bummer but i don't know like it's a messy process um clearly when you start dealing in in teams that are going to sell for over a billion dollars um it could get kind of chaotic i'm not i'm not too concerned about how it'll all come out in the wash i'm just really excited that you know the the senators seem to have uh come come you know been put on sale at a a point where the nhl is hot there's a lot of really people a lot of people that have a, a lot of money looking to buy into the league and, and it seems like whoever ends up with the team is going to be someone motivated to, to spend a lot of money to make the Senators a winner and, and, and get them to play in a place where, where fans can get to the games a little bit easier. So that's very exciting. Yeah, I, I hope so. I, definitely someone living downtown going to games. It's, it's tough to, to get out there. Um, do you think it's a trend that now teams other than maybe Arizona will be going for north of a billion dollars? Do you think the NHLs have hit that kind of realm for, for team sales? Well, like you said, I, I, I don't think it'll be every team. I think it'll be contingent on market. But there's no question that like team valuations are are just skyrocketing. I mean, part of it is the cap and part of it is which is certainly forced salaries to remain artificially lower than they should be. Part of it's the media rights deal. Part of it is just hockey kind of like, you know, hitting the right notes demographically right now and, and, mm-hmm. and, and broadening their demographics. I mean, like female viewership is, 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 is growing exponentially mm-hmm. here in the U S so like wow. it's, a, it's a good time to jump on board um, the league. Uh, so it will definitely be going over a billion and, and, and that, and, and that's a great thing to see. Well, thanks so much, Greg, for taking the time, especially on a busy day during the Stanley Cup final. So I really, really appreciate it. I just want to give you the floor. Is there anything at ESPN Puck Soup that you want to plug uh, for yourself? Well, as people know, I am not doing a lot of hockey podcasts myself yeah. these days. I, I know that. For, yeah. For, forbidden from doing them by my employer. But yeah. I do have a collection of podcasts on the Puck Soup Patreon that you can check out each month. Many of them veer into hockey territory. And then some of them are about Top Chef. So do check those out if you get a chance. Well, thank you so much, Greg. Again, I really appreciate it. I I love uh, reading your stuff. I like uh, the drop as well with you and Arda. So I really appreciate you uh, taking the time on a busy day and and doing this. Dude, it's my pleasure. I I was so excited that you asked. And uh, thanks again for your flexibility on all this. Thanks so much, Greg. Have a great day.